Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Tuesday, April 21st. I think this is going to be more of a permanent change. We're going to start coming out on Tuesdays. But anyway, announcements are over. Here's Evan Kelly. Hey, Evan. What are we doing here? Hey, I'm I'm Evan Kelly. <laughs> and what I'm doing here is <laughs> what we're doing is uh, going to look at some things going on in our world, try to make sense of them. We're going to analyze a variety of perspectives and viewpoints, and we are going to argue things, hopefully in good faith. We're going to try. That's the gold standard. And we're going to try to keep ourselves and our listeners adequately informed. Yeah, we let, we we know we don't know everything. We know we aren't the ultimate arbiters. We are not on the ivory tower. We We are fallible. We don't know it all. But we hope that we know an adequate amount to be able to discuss it in a somewhat intelligible manner. So, anyway. Hey, Evan. Hey. What do you want to talk about? Well, uh, I know that we've been doing a lot of coronavirus content lately, and that's going to continue this episode. I want to discuss a specific aspect of the coronavirus response known as the Paycheck Protection Program. Not to be confused with personal protective equipment. Yeah, PPP versus PPE. There's also the TPP, which I could get mad about later. Um, Not super relevant right at this moment, though. Uh, So Paycheck Protection Program, Triple P. Yeah, tell us about it. So the Paycheck Protection Program is a loan program offered through the Small Business Administration arm of the federal government. And the plan states that businesses with less than 500 employees can borrow two and a half times their average monthly payroll, maxing out at $10 million. And this amount becomes a grant. The loan does not have to be repaid as long as the businesses spend at least 75% of the sum that they borrow on payroll and or utilities. So, well, in a time when a lot of businesses are facing reductions, they're not getting as much business and they're having to lay off staff to accommodate that lack of revenue coming in, this is a way for the federal government to attempt to preserve jobs and keep people employed, even if the market might not require their services right now. How the program actually works is that individuals who have a qualifying company could contact local banks or, you know, banks anywhere in the country and file for a loan through the Paycheck Protection Program, and then it's guaranteed through the federal government. So assuming that the conditions of the loan are met, it turns into a grant, and then the banks will be reimbursed by the federal government. And the program in total was authorized for up to $349 billion. It sounds like a huge sum of money, and it is. And yet, this fund dried up in 13 days, serving only about one-sixth of eligible small businesses. So what on earth happened Apparently, it seems that the system was not well implemented. Unfortunately, the guidelines to banks were not clear, 
And this meant that large institutions that already had a strong framework and infrastructure for dealing with capital and loans and bank dealings were able to get in very quickly and suck up most, and in this case, all of the money. And some notable businesses that got large amounts of loans guaranteed through the Paycheck Protection Program were Shake Shack, Potbelly, and Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. A lot of restaurants took advantage of this. And why wouldn't they? I mean, it's it's open to them. But it's just sort of not what was intended to help small businesses. How they get around it is that there, there was a loophole that industry groups lobbied for, which stated that as long as a business doesn't have 500 employees at any one location, they become classified as a small business for these purposes. Ruth's Chris even got $20 million because they technically consist of two subsidiary companies, and so they were able to double their take, which is something that legislators had explicitly promised would not happen, but there were no protections against it actually written into the legislation. So here we are. And to Shake Shack's credit, they are going to return the $10 million they received because they were able to secure outside funding and have more liquidity now. But the issue is that that's exactly why places like Shake Shack shouldn't have been receiving the money in the first place. Again, I don't fault them for taking it if they could. I just think it was a legislative failure, a poorly crafted piece of legislation that allowed big companies to take advantage of it. Because what's at issue is that places like Shake Shack have an existing infrastructure to acquire capital funding and are not as vulnerable as truly small businesses. So, for example, my father owns a law practice, very small law practice in rural Illinois. He's not raking in money hand over fist. In fact, he only has one employee. So he wanted to try to take advantage of this program. He would have taken out a small, small loan. But unfortunately, none of the banks in his area understood the process to make this plan a reality. It was not well communicated, and he couldn't even get a banker to return his phone call. And so he missed out, and now he, he, who is a small business owner, faces a difficult decision on whether or not to lay off his only staff member. Thankfully, legal services are an essential business, so he can continue to operate, but obviously the number of people who are doing anything right now in the world is declining. So it's going to be a tough call for his business. And ultimately, I think it's just a cautionary tale about the downsides of trying to get legislation passed quickly. Obviously, in crisis scenarios, you have to be able to move quickly. But I still don't think that's an excuse for poor legislation and if a, a provision of a bill is supposed to help small businesses, professional lawmakers should still be able to write the bill in a way that can't be taken advantage of. So, Joe, what, what do you know about this Triple P? You've been you've been following this a little bit? Uh, a little bit. Um, so 
I can give some leeway because in any sort of crisis, you know, figuring things out, if, if anything, it's it, it, it's going to go to a point that I'm going to flesh out later of planning. But yeah, this this program was it, it for businesses. I'm trying to figure out where to start. So in order to. So this was run through the Small Business Administration, which is a rather small uh, part of the federal government. You know, it's for normally just to help small businesses get going. So its portfolio isn't normally that large. And what, you know, the tasks that it has to do aren't that large. So they don't have an existing infrastructure to dole out payments at a high scale, uh, such as what was guaranteed during, you know, from the PPP, from the, uh, you know, the relief package. So they decided to kick it out to banks. So what they would do is loan, basically guarantee uh, the banks this amount of money, and then the banks would loan that out to the individual businesses, taking advantage of what would you know you would think would be existing infrastructure to dole out money because small businesses are already dealing with banks a lot. You know they need money here, they need money there. Um, so they you know the idea is that they already have existing relationships with the banks and that they could apply through them. But the exact terms were not uh, finalized. You know, they were finalized like the day that the program started. There was disarray in understanding of what to do with it. Um, there was some question of whether the loans made out were um, for capitalization. So the way money works at banks is that, um, you know, because of reserve requirements and just kind of the nature of how money works in them, you know, if they were to give out, if they were to get, let's say $5, they can make $25 worth of loans. Um, I'm not 100% sure the, you know, the full extent of that, but that seems to be my understanding of how it works. But if it gets to the if they're just shoveling the money out, then it's less than, you know, what it was, you know, I, I, I'm just kind of rambling now, but it just seems like uh, we should, uh, with a lot of this stuff that we had going on in this, trying to have a relief program to deal with the coronavirus, it just feels like there should be existing infrastructure in place in order to facilitate the, you know, facilitate relief for these types of disasters and not have to come up with it at, at every time you do it. So like the military, the military has plans on plans on plans on plans for every type of scenario that happens. Whereas you know, the Federal Reserve has plans and they have ideas of what they can do, but fiscal stimulus that goes out to the people or, you know, businesses uh, in a more generalized sense, there aren't any existing automatic infrastructure to get money out to them. Like the IRS, you know, the the stimulus checks, the, the Donnie dollars, 
came out like three or four weeks after the bill was signed. And that's the direct deposits. And then the people who are getting physical checks may it may be until September until they get them, which is just not adequate. It's not an adequate response. Yeah, and that it's response downright time is not efficient. It's it's downright embarrassing. And it just it feels like a failure of well, I mean, uh, of planning, but it's not because nobody could envision something like this coming along. This isn't completely a shot in the dark. This isn't completely uncharted territory. People have thought of this, but people hadn't taken the threat of it seriously. And we're at a point where it's hard to politicize giving relief to people because the threat is external and not you know, a belief that it's internal, like, you know, a failure to work hard or there were some businesses who were acting bad, but it's just, there needs to be some sort of automatic stabilizers that kick in that are entitlements, which is also another, uh, you know, distinction. Like there are, if you ever hear about entitlements in public policy, it's a, public good that if you meet the requirements you get no matter what that's what an entitlement is but there are a whole lot of government programs that aren't entitlements where you can meet the criteria be qualified to get money from the government and either there just isn't enough money or there's some lottery or they pick it through some other means and only some people get it and that's kind of what happened here um there's lots of businesses that qualify for uh you know payment protection but only some were able to get it whoever was able to come in and snack it first so yeah and they had discussed trying to create some sort of system that would rank applicants based on need but it ended up being scrapped because the the time constraints that would be required to do something like that would just be a nightmare and i'm fine with with them not trying to go down that road but i think that there should have been more effective guardrails such as eliminating the multi-location loophole and the subsidiary loophole that could have gone into it yeah yeah i mean when you're trying to shovel shit out the door, you're, there's going to be a lot of issues. Um, and that's something to learn for, you know, if this ever happens again, you know, what to watch out for. But also, again, again, it just feels like this should be something that's figured out ahead of time. Like, forget, you know, coronavirus. I mean, sure, hell, maybe even we have a pandemic economic response plan in place of what's going to happen but just some just some sort of infrastructure to be able to deal with these issues even if it's just a a regular ass recession it just having to reinvent the wheel every time takes a lot of energy and a lot of a lot of uh, fine tuning is missed out on. A lot of effectiveness is missed out on because um, 
each administration that deals with it has to go and figure it out again. So, you know, I, I risk sounding like a broken record here, but I think that we were one of the first programs to talk about how relevant the fifth risk by Michael Lewis has become and still is. I've now seen that reported on in other media outlets as well. But if you have a government that doesn't take risk seriously and doesn't do enough within its authority to mitigate future risk and plan for plan for contingencies, this is what you get. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's on a basic level, even the people who aren't into government, their idea is that the government can come in when things go really awry. Mostly the like the example that people will give at the most basic level of government dealing is like defense and military, which is managing risk of death from an adversary Mm -hmm. and so many other and then people will expand that because there are so many things that are uh, risks to people's lives that are way more common than war but um, not everybody is fully agreeant on them some people just chalk it up to being life but um, that's not always the case so, well, what's what is the government's responsibility is not inherent. It's a social contract and we can decide what role we want our government to play. I happen to believe that in times of big problems, it takes big action to adequately solve them and individuals can only do so much and that's why I like the idea of a competent government. And I'm not afraid of the bureaucracy in that way. Yeah, I mean, bureaucracies can definitely get bloated, but that's a time, that's an issue for when things are on the up and up. Um, You know, that's when shit's not falling apart. Like, no, you know, during World War II, nobody was uh, getting upset at the, I don't know, price the government was paying for washers (laughs) to make planes. But um, but when you're in peacetime and you have some, you know, you have some time to think about it, you can you can ask those questions. But, um, yeah, we're, you know, I mean, we're, we're already just in the beginning, but I'm still just in awe of what this is going to be down the road. Yeah. And I think people are still. It's just hard because your choices are kind of, I think, to be naively optimistic or to fall into a pit of despair, and neither neither is satisfying. <laughs> just uh, do what I do and be pessimistically optimistic. <laughs> what? <laughs> realize the bad that is coming, but then also realize that we could do something about it possibly as a society that that's the episode title pessimistically optimistic Uh, actually fuck it that's the new podcast title (laughs) when we rebrand when we rebrand it's going to be uh pessimistically optimistic yeah you know it's it's bad but could be good yeah good can come of this (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> so, yeah, those are the thoughts I have on the PPP. End of the day, um, it seemed like a good response. And I just think that there were some pretty gaping holes that should have been addressed and were exploited. Again, I don't really fault businesses for taking advantage of that if they if they can but I, I think it should have been addressed at the legislative level and it's having uh ramifications close to home for me yeah well when we do it next time we'll do it right <laughs> or we next won't time. probably not or an even <laughs> bigger loophole will could be there <laughs> <laughs> so anyone can take an infinite amount of money. Uh that was a uh, that was the plot of like some some uh Mickey Mouse cartoon I saw as a kid. Yeah, like, Ocean's uh, 11. There was some there was some duck and he was like not Scrooge McDuck, but he was like smart and he was like a professor type and he like came up with a credit card that just gave unlimited money. <laughs> then <laughs> somebody stole it and was taking all the money, but it was like, what if we just give everybody all the money? And then I was like, whoa, as a kid. <laughs> what What if and everybody that was, had that all was the Joe's, money? That was Joe's political consciousness awakening moment right there. Yeah. So, yeah. So... So, Evan, with that, with that awakened political consciousness, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about Glenn Beck. All right. <laughs> what do you have to what do you what do you have to say about Glenn Beck? Oh, he's a great guy. Um, no, I, but it's a an idea that was kind of popularized by Glenn Beck. The he didn't come up with the idea, but. And we've talked about it on the show before, but never as a main segment. But the idea of the Overton window and spookity dookity. So the idea of an Overton window is that so take any issue that there may be. You know, I even watched a clip from Glenn Beck's show. And, you know, this example is good enough to share again. So let's say something on the idea of schooling. So on the very left, you know, the most left idea is only state schools and there is no there is no sort of there is no private schools, no charter schools, no homeschooling. Everybody has to go by law to go to a public school. Whereas the far right of the issue is there are no public schools and everybody just kind of has to fend for themselves for education. There's no public guidance from a government. And within that issue, like, like currently in the United States, neither one of those issues are very, like either poll is within the mainstream and what the Overton window is kind of where you're at in between the polls of issues. Like what is deemed to be acceptable ideas within the discourse? What are believed to be rational ways to go 
within a certain policy field. So within the school choice kind of arena, what we talk about is a mostly funded public school system where liberals are trying to get more funding. They aren't necessarily trying to outlaw private schools. They may be uh, nonplussed on school vouchers, or they may be. But then also on the right, there's more pushing for, uh, you know, more school choice. So those are the kind of range of, uh, you know, acceptable policy positions that could be held at this time. But in different places, in different countries, those are not acceptable. Like in Germany, you cannot be, I don't think you could be homeschooled in Germany. So being the idea that kids would be homeschooled is outside the Overton window. Now I'm not up to up to date on the ideas of uh, German educational policy, but uh, why not? <laughs> oh, you know, <laughs> my Thursdays are already pretty busy. Um <laughs> So this can uh, this manifests itself in a lot of ways where what's within the Overton window is essentially what politicians can do in a policy, you know, in, in, in any sort of policy sphere. It limits them because a lot of times politicians, most of the time politicians, can't change the Overton window. The Overton window is either set by, you know, is set by society in general, and most of the time is swayed by activists who can pull the policy window in either direction through persuasion. So one sphere that I wanted to look at it in is the gay marriage, uh, you know, uh, the gay marriage issue which is not an issue anymore, which shows how the Overton window has shifted on it. But one thing way back in the day, way back in the 90s, there was this bill called Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was for the military of the United States and basically said that gay individuals could serve in the military as long as they weren't out about it and they wouldn't really try and seek it out, which in the modern era, by the time it was uh, disbanded by Barack Obama, it was seen as a very toxic law, seen as very uh, regressive that, you know, military personnel couldn't be openly gay. They couldn't openly be who they were. But at the time that it was signed under Bill Clinton's administration, it was a compromise within the Oprah, you know, uh, where the Overton window had shifted because at that time they were still having a debate whether it was okay for gay people to just exist in general in society. And they wanted to put a stop to gay people being, you know, anybody who was even minorly thought to be gay to be just kicked out of the military. It was a progressive policy at the time. But over time, the the Overton window shifted so much that we would think it would be quite regressive today to just have it that they couldn't fire you um, for the mere thought of you being gay. Now we believe that you should be able to be open and that you know you can be married as a gay person. So 
the Overton window shapes a lot of what can be done at any one time. You know, people will criticize people. You know, this doesn't take away agency from people, but it at times can limit what politicians can do at any one moment. So one thing, one way Bernie Sanders has won in the last four years or four or five years is that through his, I mean, I'll, I'll say his activism through his candidacy and his advocation has shifted the Democratic Party further to the left than it otherwise would have been. So in the Obamacare fights in 2009-2010, there was a lot of question about what whether the government should have a bigger role in health care, even within the Democratic Party. There was a belief that maybe the government shouldn't be trying to take over large swaths of the healthcare system and that the Overton window was such that there were some more rural Democrats who weren't able to hold the position within their within their constituency that even a public option could be available. But now Democrats pretty universally are in favor of at least a public option, and many advocate that a much more extreme and total version of healthcare provided from the government should be implemented. So it's it's just uh it's interesting to see how it goes. And the way that the how this was brought up to me as a topic idea was I was listening to a recent Ezra Klein podcast. I forget uh his name was like Sean who Sean something. Hannity. Yeah, Sean Hannity. And he uh <laughs> the guy runs the uh Data for Progress Institute. And, you know, he, he was it was funny. It was like he, he said something that I thought was very profound. It was like, yeah, you could talk about all the Overton window stuff you want and, you know, talk about moving it left or right, because this is originally a right wing idea. But at least for progressives, at some point, you have to walk through the Overton door and actually do something, <laughs> which I thought was a a great analogy. Like you can. You could try and move the policy discussion as much as you want, but at the end of the day, you still have to do something. Um, so, yeah, what are your thoughts, Evan? Yeah, I, I hadn't uh, listened to that specific episode, but I like that a lot that you have to, you know, at some point winning the ideological war is a little irrelevant without winning the actual war. But uh, another way to think about the Overton window is to ask yourself, what's the debate that we're having? So let's go back to this healthcare idea. In 2008, the debate was over individual mandates and public options, and those things were very much contested and ended up breaking in a more conservative direction. Now, you know, a public option is so far past debate. There's not really anyone within the Democratic wing that doesn't believe in a public option when that wasn't even a realistic policy goal, uh, you know, just over a decade ago. So that's why I really like guys like Bernie Sanders or I really like Andrew Yang, guys who will just sort of put the the target up there and say, you know, we can figure out how to get here, but this is where I think we should go as long as 
you can eventually figure out how to get there. And then I'm trying to walk through the Overton door. (laughs) 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 Because uh, this was that idea was brought up because so the way left and right issues play out in the United States is different. So the Overton window was originally a pretty right wing idea about 10 years ago or was popular in right wing circles where it was like, if we just have the craziest policy responses or ideas, we'll just pull the, you know, the Republicans more to the right and they'll be closer to our vision. But for right wing and conservative parties to win, at least in the United States, for most of their issues, they don't actually have to pass anything. They can just be nihilistic, have these morals and grind everything to a halt while effectively winning in their kind of uh, wishes, whereas and they can just kind of forever being pulled to the right because it doesn't you know, because they don't have to actually pass anything. They don't have to at some point reach a level where they can compromise and decide this is what the discussion is and execute on something. Whereas conservatism, yeah, is sort of inherently resistant to changing something and doing something. Yeah. And it's not really baked into their abilities anymore. It's it's more of a a culture battle. And it doesn't necessarily result in policy change. And that's not a problem to that constituency. Right. But on the left, we have this issue where we want to do things. And you could keep, you know, you can change the Overton window to see where things are going, you know, to try and pull things in a direction that are better. You know, they kind of trying to. You know, use tactics like shame and, you know, using ethical arguments to try and bring people to better realize a more leftward vision that is better. But then you run into the complication that at some point you have to settle on something and do it like you can't just pull, keep pulling to the left, pulling to the left while nothing gets done. And because that's not going to lead to an end state where something really can get done. If you're, you know, if like, I just worry that if, you know, let's say there's a Joe Biden presidency and the policy, big policy push is for a uh, public option that, you know, also allows employers to buy in or something like that, which I think would be a good next step that there would be a whole bunch of people saying this doesn't go far enough. And it's like, yeah, it may not go far enough, but this is what we can execute right now. This is what it's in the Overton window. This this almost for a good number of people feels, you know, like it should have happened a long time ago and may even believe it happened a long time ago, but it hasn't. And um yeah, sometime at some point you got to walk through the Overton door to do something because if if you don't then you're just kind of doing what the conservatives do are doing, keeping the status quo and nothing gets done. And that's not acceptable to, in more progressive lefts or liberal, whatever, whatever synonym or uh, distinction you want to make. Well, I think that's what's contestable. The idea, what can we actually get done? 
And that seems to be the line that has cleaved the entire Democratic primary is that different forces have different ideas about what can be accomplished. Yeah. So we come to the main topic, which again is current events grab bag. Um, we are reaching, what is this? The 20th week of COVID-19. <laughs> Maybe technically if we're starting from January or yeah, December yeah. or whatever. It, it just feels like it keeps going on and it, it, it feels like, I don't know about you, but it feels like a new normal has set in for me. Um, yeah, I guess. Like, it's no longer um, new. It's no longer jarring. It's just how things are. Um, yeah, maybe it's almost more jarring when people suggest an after time. You know, I was talking to a friend uh, who was talking about the things that they're going to do in September. And I'm like, oh, man, that's that's a bit optimistic. <laughs> you, you, you're planning on it? <laughs> like, really planning on it. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of become the new normal. Like I got to, uh, I got to return to work, but I'm an essential employee. So I always was, um, so I'm not cooped up anymore. I mean, that led a little bit to the kind of normalization, which I feel like a lot of people are wishing for. Um, I'm sure there's a good number of people who would have, uh, really liked to go back to work again and, there are, as we've seen in some protests across the nation that happen totally naturally at the same time. Uh, yeah. So not nothing fishy going on. there. Yeah. So this wasn't super researched. I, I mean, maybe Evan has, but uh, over the past weekend and week, in a number of states, there was a some protests that went on that were liberate whatever state name. And it was calling to an end to the stay-at-home orders. These happened prominently in Minnesota, Michigan, and Virginia, I believe. Where Correct. kind of the most the most notable one was in Michigan, at least from my understanding, and these were a bunch of people who got together to protest not being able to go to Baskin Robbins. Um, <laughs> that's that's the bad faith argument. Like I understand people wanting to go back to work. But it just seems like we're not at a point in the public health numbers to do that. Like normally you would want to maybe loosen things up when the death count was slowing down um, significantly in some sort of way. But how many deaths are we up to now? 40,000 ish. Yeah. And it was only 30,000 by you know not too long ago uh, okay so 42,000 deaths so total and it does not appear that that is really slowing down like maybe it has a little bit 
or it's staying around its peak, but it's not to a point where it's slowing to a point where we could conceivably open things back up. This is still being, this is still very serious. Lots of people are dying because of it. Um, I even saw an interesting graph on uh, cases in Wisconsin where uh, based on the election that was had a couple weeks ago that we talked about, um, so it looked like cases had been following, but they tacked on the incubation period and the amount of time it took to test things and cases shot up after both of those, um, <laughs> showing that the the you know the primary election where even a majority of the people didn't even go out to vote still led to a big increase in cases new cases being had so mm-hmm. and the other thing with these protests is that i mean i'm sure there are people out there who are very very mad about this but at this point, it seems like it's kind of a 90-10 issue where 90% of people are in favor of keeping these uh, orders in effect in order to help the, you know, to keep people alive and not overrunning our hospital systems, which are having a hard time going at this. But then, so 90% feel that way and maybe 10% want to reopen it. But there is some possible shenanigans going on. It was found that one man who who uh, started websites for all the liberate state name uh, organizations, and there is a possibility that this is astroturfed, an astroturf movement. And Evan, what is that? So astroturfing is when a powerful organization or a small special interest group attempts to make it appear as though it's the people who are outraged about something. And they try to make the the, the idea of astroturfing is that it's a fake grassroots movement. That's where the astroturf metaphor comes in. It's trying to make the desires of elites seem as though they are the desires of the common man. Yeah. And through astroturfing, you know, if they give enough backing to these movements in these states and, you know, you argue enough, (laughs) talking about the Overton window again, you could turn this from a 90-10 issue to a 55-45 issue in somewhat short order if you dump enough resources into it. We might already be seeing that because uh, the the study that I heard reported from, I want to say Pew, as reported through the most recent John Oliver episode, is that the percentage of people who are concerned about reopening things too quickly is 66%. So if, if it started around 90%, that may already be trending in the negative direction. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it'd be interesting. It'd be funny because this could be something that could be astroturf, but then just you could also conceivably get the same effect over just a time horizon. So more people believe the economy needs to open up because of the movement or more people 
believe the economy needs to open up because things have gotten better, things have died down, and it could be conceivable to do it. But at least at this present moment, it does not seem like it would be a wise decision. Um, because, you know, I, I did see something. So in the Spanish flu, which happened in 1918, from my understanding, from what I saw was that the first wave of the flu killed three to 5 million people. And that's a lot of people. And then because of that, they had been closed down. But after things died down a bit, they opened back up. The second wave killed around 20 million people. Like way outstripping the initial wave because everybody treated it seriously. And then people didn't treat it seriously after, you know, it wasn't done. And everything just went to hell way worse than the first time. And I, there's a real fear that that could happen with this, um, have a second wave that is way more potent. But then again, we don't even, I, I'm not even sure if we fully, this, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It, it just doesn't seem like there's a true plan going forward that anybody yeah. has like there is no settled expert consensus on when to open up and how to go about it um and that's where i really sympathize with this angst because it, it's just unsustainable to tell people sit down and shut up indefinitely you know it, and and again a lot of this comes from poor leadership that is now attempting to do the astroturfing, but just to kind of keep people hanging on this hook with an undetermined time frame is bound to engender a deep sense of dissatisfaction. It's inevitable. Yeah. Like if this was some sort of, we gave some sort of biblical proclamation at the beginning of it for 40 days and 40 nights you shall stay at home and protect your family and all that fun stuff people could deal with that yeah it would be palatable because you know when it's going to be over but we don't know when it's going to be over and oh it's just tough i mean <laughs> i mean i mean you all know it everybody listening who knows <laughs> Um, it's tough to just put everything on hold. So I can understand the frustration, but what I can't understand is just bad arguments, conspiracy theories, you know, people saying that this came from a lab, that it was a deliberate experiment. There's no evidence to suggest that no credible reports that are saying that. Um, you know, my comparisons to the flu, my, uh, my thought was if they created it in a lab to be a weapon against the world, they did a pretty weak sauce job of it. As far as <laughs> pandemics go, this is pretty weak. I mean, it is devastating for a lot of people, but I mean, if you want to manufacture a disease to fuck with everybody, you could do a little better. <laughs> 
but just really bullshit comparisons being thrown around. Let, let's put this flu comparison to bed right here. People talking about how more people die for the flu, from the flu and it doesn't shut everything down. Well, that's on that's not taking into account the mortality rate relative to the number of cases. The coronavirus has a much higher mortality rate. Also, even though the flu has a lower mortality rate than coronavirus, we have fucking vaccines for it. People get vaccinated against the new flu strains every year. We would be able to open things again in the coronavirus fears if we had a vaccine. People just ignore that fact. Like, that's not a very crucial difference between the common influenza and COVID-19. It's ridiculous. We're talking about all of these other risks, things that kill more people a year. A, we do try to prevent other preventable deaths. There are very real public health measures taken against all things that are lethal within this country. And two, the things that they're being compared to are not communicable. Right. You know, people talk about deaths from cigarettes, deaths from obesity. Dr. Phil had that factually inaccurate line about deaths from swimming pool, deaths from swimming pools. None of those things can be passed on to other people. That is the key issue, is that by shutting down the economy and shutting down public life, we are trying to prevent a spread of a virus, which then will prevent the mortality. And so, you know, I, like I said, I understand the frustration, but think about things for 15 seconds before you speak into a microphone in an interview and say shit that is so obviously stupid. Yeah. Um, you know, I get a little spooked by how passively agreeable it is that that people just uh, die like it, it seems very blase like people are being heroic saying that oh some people will die like it, in some weird like wartime sacrifice it doesn't have to be like that and and a, a point i want to make on the flu comparison like yeah the flu kills a lot of people every year, but then also that death toll is over the course of a year. Um, it, it, you know, let's say, um, I don't even know the statistics, but it, it seems like every time coronavirus deaths go up, the amount of flu deaths go up every, <laughs> you know, the comparison goes up. <laughs> um, so let's say, I mean, if there are 30,000 flu deaths every year, that's over the course of a year. There have been 42,000 coronavirus deaths in eight weeks. Like this shows that it's just a much more, much deadlier disease, much, it, you know, it kills at a higher rate and it's also spreading at a higher rate and it's killing faster than the flu does, um, you know, in this condensed time period. I mean, there is some counterfactual. It's like, well, what if we just gave everybody the flu at one point? And blah, 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 blah. but anyway, it's it's. But and you know, and this is one thing that, like, yeah, I can fault the talking heads, but I, you know, at some point, I can uh, give the average person a little bit of leeway because nobody nobody can intuitively feel the difference between a disease that kills 0.1% of people and a disease that kills like 2% of people. Like, I, I'm not sure if that's 
an individual can intuitively feel that from their experiences in life. Like it's something you have to be told and know. Um, so. Well, yeah, but you could, you could easily find that perspective and that information. I get that it might not be intuitive, but in a, a massive event that's going on, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect people to, try to find a little bit of information. I mean, again, it, it's almost to uh, that uh, question we answered the other week. It was like cherry picking facts. Um, you know, without the right perspective, you could cherry pick some facts on this and make it seem like, Oh, it's not a big deal. Um, without the proper perspective and proper nuance to it. Like, I mean, well, it does. Oh, go ahead. I mean, no, you go ahead. <laughs> well, it does kind of come back to this question of how we value human life. And I think that the rhetoric of sacrifice has been enormously powerful here. You know, I think as Americans, we have become sort of inured to death rates of certain things. We're okay sacrificing people for military intervention. We're okay sacrificing people to other diseases and life just kind of goes on. We are told how many people die from certain things, but it just feels normal. And we have these heroic associations with death that make it seem like it's okay to die as long as we're dying for a cause. And some people genuinely believe that that's a deeply held belief of theirs. But from mine, and I'm guessing your perspective, we're not so blasé about death and we want to try and prevent excess death as much as possible. Well, there's some sort, a, a kind of small C conservative view that a lot of people have is that that's just life. Um, you know, people die. That's part of life is death. But then there's a whole lot you can do to help prevent people from dying prematurely. And I mean, you do get into questions of how much do you do to save one life? But it feels like at least for now with the coronavirus, the sacrifices we're being asked to make are worth it considering the lives that it can save. I think it's almost a little bit crass to evaluate human lives and try to put a, a dollar figure on there. But nonetheless, that is something that people do. Actuaries do that. Insurance adjusters do that. And a friend of mine recently posted an analysis which said that, you know, yes, these shutdown measures are actually economically beneficial too by the projected life savings. So, like I said, for my own subjective evaluation, it's not too severe, but there is data to begin to suggest that economically the shutdown is an effective decision as well. Yeah, there's uh there's also been some research, you know, cutting against what would be the uh, claim for reopening the economy that we would just go back to what we were doing before this all shook out. 
Um, so there has been some, I saw some research where they looked at uh, the number of patrons visiting restaurants before state shutdowns happened. And I forget what it was, but restaurant attendance was already down significantly before the official government shutdown was in place. So people in their own self-preservation stopped going to restaurants before the state said mandated that people stopped going to restaurants. So if we were to open up the economy again, it wouldn't be like everybody would just willingly go back to restaurants. You would get that. I mean, let's say it's 10% again. You get those 10% of people going back to Baskin Robbins, but um, everybody else would be staying at home because of fears of death. And you'd oh, yeah, be putting absolutely. all these people at risk for no economic gain and could actually make it worse because, you know, if you try to run your business and there's no like if you're being shut down because the government shuts you down, that's one thing you can, you know, there are social uh, program. I mean, hopefully further social programs that come down the pipeline to help you. Uh, banks, I believe, would be a little bit more gracious. You're not having to buy more product. You know, you're just kind of at your base fixed costs to do business. And even the public perception, I think, would be different. Yeah. But if you open up, then everybody's on your payroll again. You have to try and make it as a business. The, the, you know, the, the ground is taken under you from under you. Absolutely. And there is there isn't going to be as many supports for you if you try to go down that that path. So I don't think opening up would do much right now. Like maybe there could be somewhat looser, uh, you know, if the death count were to significantly decrease, like the daily death count were to significantly decrease, then I could understand the possibility of loosening just a little bit some restrictions. So... Uh, maybe expanding what is considered an essential business or granting non-essential more non-essential businesses the ability to do any sort of business um but at this time it does not seem like we are at a place where even the general society would work a fully open economy people would oh, I wholeheartedly yeah agree. people would still seek their own self-preservation in this and wouldn't be doing what they need to, you know, wouldn't be doing the same economic activity as before. And then also I want to take to task just on a pure economic basis, the let people die for the sake of the economy argument. So all those people who would die are still part of the economy if they are alive but if they're dead, they no longer contribute to the economy. Like the deaths of 100,000 people means that 100,000 people are no longer participating in the economy. And maybe a shift of that much alone could just cause a recession if they're in the right places due to the lack of their either labor or buying power. So sure. <laughs> people to for economies to function there have to be people and letting a whole bunch of people like let's say we have a million people die 
oh man, that's a lot of, I mean, that's a lot of death, which I care about more, but even on the economics, you know, if you just cared about an economy opening back up, a million people just suddenly gone from the workforce and the economy isn't good for the economy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's kind of the context for the economic analysis that I had, had mentioned earlier. But I just want to return to that idea that people voluntarily not returning to the economy, even if things are open, is very real. A family member of mine is over 60, has diabetes and COPD, and they've said, you know, not doing anything until there's a vaccine. Even if everything's reopened, I'm not going to take that risk. And who can fault them for that? Yeah, it, I mean, for certain population, they populations, they really are looking down the barrel of a gun with this of chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if they have high risk factors, there is a very high certainty that they will contract the virus. You know, if they contract the virus, it could be severe or deadly. And even people who get the virus and recover from it from a severe standpoint, it is not a pleasant experience. You basically aren't able to breathe. And, you know, I listened to a podcast with from Freakonomics that was exploring whether, you know, it, there are some questions whether even ventilators are a proper treatment for uh, COVID-19. Now, that's not to say we need to pull the plug on trying to get more ventilators out in the world, but it it's not great and it doesn't have as high of a success rate as we would like. Um, and it's just a horrible disease that you basically suffocate from. And hell, just even reducing the suffering of it. Like, hell, even if this disease didn't kill people, but just made them miserable for a long time, I think we should be doing this stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. because who wants to go through that? I mean, hell, maybe we need to do a public messaging campaign about the horrors of, severe cases of the coronavirus if that would get more people off like people treat it like a death from coronavirus is i don't know like euthanasia or you know just getting shot in the head like a real quick offing no it's it's weeks of pain and suffering before you die and i know i know a lot of uh not a lot i know a couple of health communication scholars who would be very interested to dig into the messaging implications for that type of theory. So it's, it's interesting because I, I actually, you know, I, I think I consume a wide variety of content and, you know, when things are in the public spheres, but there isn't a ton out there about the, the brutality of the severe cases or the, you know, the, the deadly cases of coronavirus, like, you know, you'll, and, and I think it could be part of it is that nobody is allowing family members in, uh, to these hospitals because those would be theoretically Mm -hmm. the people who would do that. Um, you know, you get some footage of a family member dying of coronavirus and then you can give that up medical professionals can't provide that because of hipaa um Mm -hmm. so um somebody would have to sign away their rights to 
have it publicized and that's just hasn't really been happening a whole lot like there have been accounts yeah, of it I, I don't think there's a yeah but i don't think there's like a good infrastructure for hospitals to go public with documenting the severe cases for pr purposes or what have you i, I just don't think that that kind of system exists i mean i don't think so i mean especially in this kind of circumstance like even the diseases that are bad, you know, if there's to become a public awareness, it takes a long time. It takes groups pushing mm-hmm. for a long time to be able to get that out there or to actually uncover the true nature of the disease um, when it comes to it. So um, communicating these issues, I feel, is key because, I mean, uh, that that thing of it's just the flu also is harmful because people have had flus. And I mean, I think, I mean, what makes another thing that makes this so difficult is that there are a wide number of people who will get this disease and it does very little to nothing to them. And they, you know, it's hard to see the, you know, how deadly it can be. And then all of a sudden it's given to the right person and they die from it. And like, if it, if it was something where it was killing everybody at kind of equal numbers and I, you know, I don't know, it maybe it would more, we would more collectively take it more seriously, but I don't know. Yeah, there was something that uh, a doctor said. I can't remember if it was on the Ezra Klein show or if I think it was the New York Times Daily podcast, actually, where he talked about how in most populations, the death rate is zero, but then certain vulnerable populations, the death rate is 20, 30 percent. So that's when it becomes difficult to feel is that for so many people, you're going to survive. You're going to be okay from it. But under certain circumstances, it gets exponentially more dicey. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's I mean, I feel like we just come up here every week and say shit spooky, guys, and shit is spooky. <laughs> um, and I feel like I, you know, a little bit by little bit, we're starting to see more of the um, outcomes of the economic side of things. So I saw some rumblings that clothing retailers may start going under, um, basically because none of them are deemed essential services and they're just strapped for cash. (laughs) And, Mm. uh, you know, I, I don't, see the clothing industry as being an industry where people are very sympathetic to saving it. Mm-hmm. So who knows? I mean, because there's lots of competitors in it and I mean, it's not as vital because clothing, I mean, it's essential, but it's kind of seen as a frivolous good at worst. Yeah. Clothing. We understand that clothing is essential, but fashion is not seen as essential. Yeah. So that's that could be one thing where we uh, we see some uh, a wave of closures 
Um, that's one thing I, I think I'll start keeping a lookout is for notable companies that uh, have closed down. So last. Well, go ahead. Oh, from my world of movies, um, industry analysts project AMC to go bust this year. And the entire theater industry in general is really in danger because movie theaters typically are very large building, very large buildings. They have large rents. And so it's they have a high overhead even without paying for products and employees and with no revenue coming in, it's going to be very difficult for theaters to survive this. Yeah. I, I, I feel like in, after this is over, there's going to be a, you know, some interesting economic analysis of businesses that were uniquely susceptible to being, uh, fucked over by this shutdown and i Mm -hmm. believe movie theaters is one of them like i yeah i remember in the uh you know the great recession um some family members were uh engaged in flipping houses during that time which is about the you know that that was the unique activity that was just absolutely devastated destroyed by that economic recession so who knows it seems like in this recession we're gonna be seeing a lot of businesses that rely on large gatherings and high fixed costs go under Mm -hmm. i mean we already saw the uh xfl go under which which I will say was probably already going to happen without the coronavirus. <laughs> the uh, uh, competing sports leagues in the United States haven't always fared too well. But um who knows? Maybe uh you know, maybe there's a sports league that is a a bit more strapped for cash, not as lucrative that could have could be more susceptible to going under. Like, I don't think the NFL is going to go under or the NBA no. or the MLB, but maybe an individual no, team they're fine. in the MLB or, you know, maybe hockey. I don't know much about hockey. Hockey's doing fine. They're okay. I mean, but for how long? Like, can. Yeah, well, of course. Yeah. I mean, like, can these sports survive a whole season without doing their work? Um, I saw an article that was also interesting about, like, uh, what was it? Theme parks. Like, ones, businesses that open for the summer are going to be affected by this because they, it may end up that they don't have a whole year of revenue. Like, Mm -hmm. depending on how long this goes for, we could see a whole summer where we don't do these things. Where, you know, I live not far away from a Six Flags. This Six Flags probably ain't going to be opening up this season, or it's only going to do like half a season. And it may not be able to survive that. Yeah, again, it all comes down to this timeline 
where if it ends up resolving pretty quickly and the public health officials say that we're okay or we find a vaccine or what have you, maybe we can skirt some of the worst eventualities. But if it drags on and those longer timelines start to become a reality, it's going to challenge a lot of businesses and a lot of core institutions. I mean, hell, I saw something about uh, universities worrying about their bottom lines. Um, Yeah. Because there's a possibility that they, well, they've already been seeing decreased enrollment over the last few years. But couple that with they may just not, well, one, they're probably not going to have as good summer semesters, which, you know, aren't how they make their bank. But the fall semester, I mean, there could be decreased uh, enrollment because of this. So, Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, there's uncertainty with people entering schools at this point, but also there are other people who really just cannot stomach online classes. Another relative of mine is a college student and she has enough, she is finishing up her junior year right now, has enough credits to graduate in one more semester. And she was saying that she hates online classes so much that if she is told that fall semester is being online, she'll sit out fall semester and just hope for a better climate by spring so that she can return to campus and just do that one semester's worth of classes and not compromise her graduation timeline. Yeah. Also, we are talking about this, but I am looking at my computer and I see a news story that Shake Shack is, uh, has returned their loan from the PPP. Yep. I mentioned that. Oh, you did? I think I yeah, I had meant to. Maybe I didn't. Everyone can fact check me. Did he say it? Go back and check and we'll play some like elevator music for a second. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, this is a uh, this is another round of the doom and gloom show. Do we have an uplifting perspective, Evan? Um, um. Like end segment times? Or? No, I mean, do we have an end? I don't think we have an end segment. I I want I want to pitch an end segment. Pitch me to an you. end segment. It's just called random recommendations. Let's each recommend one thing that is good. Oh, okay. All right, and and now for our end segment. <laughs> Random recommendations with Evan and Joe. Yeah. We're going to recommend to you one thing apiece. Um, okay. Joe, look at- I sprung this on you, so I'll go first if you want go me to. Go first. <laughs> I want to recommend the show Survivor. I never watched it in any meaningful way before now, but this current season is called Winners at War. Everyone who's playing is a past winner of Survivor. It is crazy. It is chaotic. And it is become the best part of my week the hour that i spend watching survivor on wednesday nights there is still plenty of time to get invested in this season and if you are at all inclined towards competition-based shows i think that this would be a fun injection into your week um my recommendation is this article that i just read it's called it's time to build it's called, it's by this guy named Mark Anderson. 
Um, it was making around this on Twitter and I liked it a lot. It's kind of a call to action um, against the kind of societal paralysis that we have felt in, I mean, not just the United States, but greater parts of Western society for a while where we feel there, there's almost a complacency to interacting with the problems that we face and that we should, you know, it's time to build. I mean, maybe it's in building housing to provide affordable housing to people, but it's time to build institutions that can handle things. Um, maybe not in, you know, every possible, you know, good possible way, but at least need to have some imagination and build them so that we can tackle things as a society that we can totally tackle. We just have to do it. We, we have to, you know, not get as hung up on everything and just make it happen. And we can make our lives so much better by just doing it. Um, so that's uh that's my recommendation i'll link it in the show notes so oh sweet so anyway i guess that brings us to an end of this episode we would like to thank you as always for listening if you have any questions comments concerns if you want to recommend us something uh email us at podcast at adequately and yeah, we could use some recommendations. Yeah. Anyway, on that note, my name's Joe. And mine's Evan. And we hope that you've been adequately informed. <laughs>